Section 4 of Natural Theology by William Paley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3, Application of the Argument, Part 2. One question may possibly have dwelt in the reader's mind during the perusal of these observations, namely, why should not the deity have given to the animal the faculty of vision at once? Why this circuitous perception, the ministry of so many means, an element provided for the purpose, reflected from opaque substances, refracted through transparent ones, and both according to precise laws, then a complex organ, an intricate and artificial apparatus, in order, by the operation of this element, and in conformity with the restrictions of these laws, to produce an image upon a membrane communicating with the brain. Wherefore all this? Why make the difficulty in order only to surmount it? If to perceive objects by some other mode than that of touch, or objects which lay out of the reach of that sense, were the thing purposed, could not a simple volition of the Creator have communicated the capacity? Why resort to contrivance where power is omnipotent? Contrivance, by its very definition and nature, is the refuge of imperfection. To have recourse to expedience implies difficulty, impediment, restraint, defect of power. This question belongs to the other senses as well as to sight to the general functions of animal life, as nutrition, secretion, respiration, to the economy of vegetables, and indeed to almost all the operations of nature. The question, therefore, is of very wide extent, and, amongst other answers which may be given to it, beside reasons of which probably we are ignorant, one answer is this. It is only by the display of contrivance that the existence, the agency, the wisdom of the deity could be testified to his rational creatures. This is the scale by which we ascend to all the knowledge of our Creator which we possess, so far as it depends upon the phenomena or the works of nature. Take away this, and you take away from us every subject of observation and ground of reasoning. I mean as our rational faculties are formed at present. Whatever is done, God could have done without the intervention of instruments or means. But it is in the construction of instruments, in the choice and adaptation of means, that a creative intelligence is seen. It is this which constitutes the order and beauty of the universe. God, therefore, has been pleased to prescribe limits to his own power, and to work his ends within those limits. The general laws of matter have perhaps the nature of these limits, its inertia, its reaction, the laws which govern the communication of motion, the refraction and reflection of light, the constitution of fluids non-elastic and elastic, the transmission of sound through the latter, the laws of magnetism, of electricity, and probably others yet undiscovered. These are general laws, and when a particular purpose is to be effected, it is not by making a new law, nor by the suspension of the old ones, nor by making them wind and bend and yield to the occasion, for nature with great steadiness adheres to and supports them, but it is, as we have seen in the eye, by the interposition of an apparatus corresponding with these laws, and suited to the exigency which results from them, that the purpose is at length attained. As we have said, therefore, God prescribes limits to his power, that he may let in the exercise, and thereby exhibit demonstrations of his wisdom. For then, i.e., such laws and limitations being laid down, it is as though one being should have fixed certain rules, and if we may so speak, provided certain materials, and afterwards have committed to another being, out of these materials, and in subordination to these rules, the task of drawing forth a creation a supposition which evidently leaves room, and induces indeed a necessity, for contrivance. Nay, there may be many such agents, and many ranks of these, 
we do not advance this as a doctrine either of philosophy or of religion, but we say that the subject may safely be represented under this view, because the deity, acting himself by general laws, will have the same consequences upon our reasoning as if he had prescribed these laws to another. It has been said that the problem of creation was attraction and matter being given to make a world out of them, and, as above explained, this statement perhaps does not convey a false idea. We have made choice of the I as an instance upon which to rest the argument of this chapter. Some single example was to be proposed, and the eye offered itself under the advantage of admitting of a strict comparison with optical instruments. The ear, it is probable, is no less artificially and mechanically adapted to its office than the eye, but we know less about it. We do not so well understand the action, the use, or the mutual dependency of its internal parts. Its general form, however, both external and internal, is sufficient to show that it is an instrument adapted to the reception of sound. That is to say, already knowing that sound consists in pulses of the air, we perceive in the structure of the ear a suitableness to receive impressions from this species of action, and to propagate these impressions to the brain. For of what does this structure consist? An external ear, the concha, calculated like an ear trumpet to catch and collect the pulses of which we have spoken, in large quadrupeds turning to the sound and possessing a configuration, as well as motion, evidently fitted for the office, of a tube which leads into the head, lying at the root of this outward ear, the folds and sinuses thereof tending and conducting the air towards it, of a thin membrane, like the pelt of a drum, stretched across this passage upon a bony rim, of a chain of movable and infinitely curious bones, forming a communication, and the only communication that can be observed, between the membrane last mentioned and the interior channels and recesses of the skull, of cavities similar in shape and form to wind instruments of music, being spiral or portions of circles, of the eustachian tube, like the hole in a drum, to let the air pass freely into and out of the barrel of the ear as the covering membrane vibrates, or as the temperature may be altered, the whole labyrinth hewn out of a rock, that is, wrought into the substance of the hardest bone of the body. This assemblage of connected parts constitutes together an apparatus, plainly enough relative to the transmission of sound, or of the impulses received from sound, and only to be lamented in not being better understood. The communication within, formed by the small bones of the ear, is, to look upon, more like what we are accustomed to call machinery than anything I am acquainted with in animal bodies. It seems evidently designed to continue towards the sensorium the tremulous motions which are excited in the membrane of the tympanum, or what is better known by the name of the drum of the ear. The compages of bones consist of four, which are so disposed and so hinge upon one another, as that, if the membrane, the drum of the ear, vibrate, all the four are put in motion together, and, by the result of their action, work the base of that which is the last in the series, upon an aperture which it closes, and upon which it plays, and which aperture opens into the tortuous canals that lead to the brain. This last bone of the four is called the stapes. The office of the drum of the ear is to spread out an extended surface capable of receiving the impressions of sound, and of being put by them into a state of vibration. The office of the stapes is to repeat these vibrations. It is a repeating frigate, stationed more within the line, from which account of its action may be understood how the sensation of sound will be excited by anything which communicates a vibratory motion to the stapes, though not, as in all ordinary cases, through the intervention of the membrana tympani. This is done by solid bodies applied to the bones of the skull, 
as by a metal bar holding at one end between the teeth and touching at the other end a tremulous body. It likewise appears to be done in a considerable degree by the air itself, even when this membrane, the drum of the ear, is greatly damaged. Either in the natural or preternatural state of the organ, the use of the chain of bones is to propagate the impulse in a direction towards the brain, and to propagate it with the advantage of a lever, which advantage consists in increasing the force and strength of the vibration, and at the same time diminishing the space through which it oscillates, both of which changes may augment or facilitate the still deeper action of the auditory nerves. The benefit of the eustachian tube to the organ may be made out upon known pneumatic principles. Behind the drum of the ear is a second cavity or barrel called the tympanum. The eustachian tube is a slender pipe, but sufficient for the passage of air, leading from this cavity into the back part of the mouth. Now it would not have done to have had a vacuum in this cavity, for in that case the pressure of the atmosphere from without would have burst the membrane which covered it. Nor would it have done to have filled the cavity with lymph or any other secretion, which would necessarily have obstructed both the vibration of the membrane and the play of the small bones. Nor, lastly, would it have done to have occupied the space with confined air, because the expansion of that air by heat, or its contraction by cold, would have distended or relaxed the covering membrane, in a degree inconsistent with the purpose which it was assigned to execute. The only remaining expedient, and that for which the eustachian tube serves, is to open to this cavity a communication with the external air. In one word, it exactly answers the purpose of the hole in a drum. The membrana tympani itself, likewise, deserves all the examination which can be made of it. It is not found in the ears of fish, which furnishes an additional proof of what indeed is indicated by everything about it, that it is appropriated to the action of air, or of an elastic medium. It bears an obvious resemblance to the pelt or head of a drum, from which it takes its name. It resembles also a drum head in this principal property, that its use depends upon its tension. Tension is the state essential to it. Now we know that in a drum the pelt is carried over a hoop, and braced, as occasion requires, by the means of strings attached to its circumference. In the membrane of the ear, the same purpose is provided for, more simply, but not less mechanically, nor less successfully, by a different expedient, viz. by the end of a bone, the handle of the malleus, pressing upon its center. It is only in very large animals that the texture of this membrane can be discerned. In the Philosophical Transactions for the year 1800, Volume 1, Mr. Everard Holm has given some curious observations upon the ear and the drum of the ear of an elephant. He discovered it in what he calls a radiated muscle, that is, straight muscular fibers passing along the membrane from the circumference to the center, from the bony rim which surrounds it towards the handle of the malleus to which the central part is attached. This muscle he supposes to be designed to bring the membrane into unison with different sounds. But then he also discovered that this muscle itself cannot act unless the membrane be drawn to a stretch, and kept in a due state of tightness by what may be called a foreign force, viz. the action of the muscles of the malleus. Supposing his explanation of the use of the parts to be just, our author is well founded in the reflection which he makes upon it, quote, that this mode of adapting the ear to different sounds is one of the most beautiful applications of muscles in the body. The mechanism is so simple, and the variety of effects so great. Close quote. In another volume of the transactions above referred to, and of the same year, two most curious cases are related of persons who retained the sense of hearing, not in a perfect, but in a very considerable degree, notwithstanding the almost total loss of the membrane we have been describing. In one of these cases, the use here assigned to that membrane, 
of modifying the impressions of sound by change of tension was attempted to be supplied by straining the muscles of the outward ear the external ear we are told quote, had acquired a distinct motion upward and backward which was observable whenever the patient listened to anything which he did not distinctly hear when he was addressed in a whisper the ear was seen immediately to move when the tone of voice was louder it then remained altogether motionless it appears probable from both these cases that a collateral if not principal use of the membrane is to cover and protect the barrel of the ear which lies behind it both the patients suffered from cold one a great increase of deafness from catching cold the other very considerable pain from exposure to a stream of cold air bad effects therefore followed from this cavity being left open to the external air yet had the author of nature shut it up by any other cover than what was capable by its texture of receiving vibrations from sound and by its connection with the interior parts of transmitting those vibrations to the brain the use of the organ so far as we can judge must have been entirely obstructed End of section 4.